Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis Chapter 6, Bluttery Epigram Anyway, for heaven's sake, so I were out of your whispering. Webster Now that we have done with Chart, we may call Wyvern College simply Wyvern, or more simply still, as Wyvernians themselves call it, the Call. Going to the Call was the most exciting thing that had yet happened in my outer life. At Chart, we had lived under the shadow of the Call. We were often taken there to see matches or sports, or the finish of the great Goldberry run. These visits turned our heads. The crowd of boys older than oneself, their dazzling air of sophistication, scraps of their esoteric talk overheard, were like Park Lane in the old season to a girl who is to be a debutante next year. Above all, the Bloods, the adored athletes and prefects, were an embodiment of all worldly pomp, power, and glory. Beside them, Pogo shrank into insignificance. What is a master compared with a Blood? The whole school was a great temple for the worship of these mortal gods, and no boy ever went there more prepared to worship than I. If you have not been at such a school as Wyvern, you may ask what a blood is. He is a member of the school aristocracy. Foreign readers must clearly understand that this aristocracy has nothing whatever to do with the social position of the boys in the outer world. Boys of good or wealthy family are no more likely to be in it than anyone else. The only nobleman in my house at Wyvern never became a blood. Shortly before my time there, the son of a very queer customer had been at least on the fringe of bluttery. The qualifying condition for bluttery is that one should have been at the school for a considerable time. This by itself will not get you in, but newness will certainly exclude you. The most important qualification is athletic prowess. Indeed, if this is sufficiently brilliant, it makes you a blood automatically. If it is a little less brilliant, then good looks and personality will help. So, of course, will fashion, as fashion is understood at your school. A wise candidate for bluttery will wear the right clothes, use the right slang, admire the right things, laugh at the right jokes. And of course, as in the outer world, those on the fringes of the privileged class can, and do, try to worm their way into it by all the usual arts of pleasing. At some schools, I am told, there is a sort of diarchy. An aristocracy of bloods, supported or at least tolerated by popular sentiment, stands over against an official ruling class of prefects appointed by the masters. I believe they usually appoint it from the highest form, so that it has some claim to be an intelligentsia. It was not so at the call. Those who were made prefects were nearly all bloods, and they did not have to be in any particular form. Theoretically, though I do not suppose this would ever happen, the dunce at the bottom of the lowest form could have been made the captain, in our language, the head of the call. We thus had only a single governing class in whom every kind of power, privilege, and prestige were united. Those to whom the hero worship of their juniors would in any case have gone, and those whose astuteness and ambition would under any system have enabled them to rise, were the same whom the official power of the masters supported. Their position was emphasized by special liberties, clothes, priorities, and dignities which affected every side of school life. This, you will see, makes a pretty strong class. 
but it was strengthened still further by a factor which distinguishes school from ordinary life. In a country governed by an oligarchy, huge numbers of people, and among them some very stirring spirits, know they can never hope to get into that oligarchy. It may therefore be worth their while to attempt a revolution. At the call, the lowest class of all were too young, therefore too weak, to dream of revolt. In the middle class, boys who were no longer fags but not yet bloods, those who alone had physical strength and popularity enough to qualify them as leaders of a revolution were already beginning to hope for bloodery themselves. It suited them better to accelerate their social progress by courting the existing bloods than to risk a revolt which, in the unlikely event of its succeeding, would destroy the very prize they were longing to share. And if at last they despaired of ever doing so, why, by that time, their school days were nearly over. Hence the Wyvernian constitution was unbreakable. Schoolboys have often risen against their masters. I doubt if there has ever been, or ever can be, a revolt against bloods. It is not, then, surprising if I went to the call prepared to worship. Can any adult aristocracy present the world to us in quite such an alluring form as the hierarchy of a public school? Every motive for prostration is brought to bear at once on the mind of the new boy when he sees a blood, the natural respect of the 13-year-old for the 19-year-old, the fans feeling for a film star, the suburban woman's feeling for a duchess, the newcomer's awe in the presence of the old hand, the street urchin's dread of the police. One's first hours at a public school are unforgettable. Our house was a tall, narrow stone building, and, by the way, the only house in the place which was not an architectural nightmare. Rather like a ship, the deck on which we chiefly lived consisted of two very dark stone corridors at right angles to one another. The doors off them opened into the studies, little rooms about six feet square, each shared by two or three boys. The very sight of them was ravishing to a boy from a prep school who had never before had a pied-à-terre of his own. As we were still living, culturally, in the Edwardian period, each study imitated as closely as possible the cluttered appearance of an Edwardian drawing-room. The aim was to fill the tiny cell as full as it could hold with bookcases, corner cupboards, knick-knacks, and pictures. There were two larger rooms on the same floor, one the pres room, the Synod of Olympus, and the other the new boy's study. It was not like a study at all. It was larger, darker, and undecorated. An immovable bench ran around the clamped table. But we knew, we ten or twelve recruits, that not all of us would be left in the new boy's study. Some of us would be given real studies. The residue would occupy the opprobrious place for a term or so. That was the great hazard of our first evening. One was to be taken and another left. As we sat round our clamped table, silent for the most part, and speaking in whispers when we spoke, the door would be opened at intervals. A boy would look in, smile, not at us but to himself, and withdraw. Once, over the shoulder of the smiler, there came another face, and a chuckling voice said, Ho, ho, I know what you're looking for. Only I knew what it was all about, for my brother had played Chesterfield to my Stanhope, and instructed me in the manners of the call. None of the boys who looked in and smiled was a blood. They were all quite young, and there was something common to the faces of them all. They were, in fact, the reigning or fading tarts of the house, trying to guess which of us were their destined rivals or successors. 
It is possible that some readers will not know what a house tart was. First, as to the adjective. All life at Wyvern was lived, so to speak, in the two concentric circles of call and house. You could be a call pre or merely a house pre. You could be a call blood or merely a house blood. A call punt, that is a pariah or unpopular person, or merely a house punt. And, of course, a call tart or merely a house tart. A tart is a pretty and effeminate looking small boy who acts as a catamite to one or more of his seniors, usually bloods. Usually, not always. Though our oligarchy kept most of the amenities of life to themselves, they were, on this point, liberal. They did not impose chastity on the middle-class boy in addition to all his other disabilities. Pederasty among the lower classes was not side, or at least not serious side, not like putting one's hand in one's pockets or wearing one's coat unbuttoned. The gods had a sense of proportion. The tarts had an important function to play in making school, what it was advertised to be, a preparation for public life. They were not like slaves, for their favors were, nearly always, solicited, not compelled. Nor were they exactly like prostitutes, for the liaison often had some permanence and, far from being merely sensual, was highly sentimentalized. Nor were they paid, in hard cash I mean, for their services, though of course they had all the flattery, unofficial influence, favor and privileges which the mistresses of the great have always enjoyed in adult society. That was where the preparation for public life came in. It would appear from Mr. Arnold Lund's Harrovians that the tarts at his school acted as informers. None of ours did. I ought to know, for one of my friends shared a study with a minor tart, and except that he was sometimes turned out of the study when one of the tarts' lovers came in, and that, after all, was only natural, he had nothing to complain of. I was not shocked by these things. For me, at that age, the chief drawback to the whole system was that it bored me considerably. For you will have missed the atmosphere of our house unless you picture the whole place from week's end to week's end buzzing, tittering, hinting, whispering about this subject. After games, gallantry was the principal topic of polite conversation. Who had a case with whom? Whose star was in the ascendant? Who had whose photo? Who and when and how often and what night and where? I suppose it might be called the Greek tradition. But the vice in question is one to which I had never been tempted and which, indeed, I still find opaque to the imagination. Possibly, if I had only stayed longer at the call, I might, in this respect as in others, have been turned into a normal boy, as the system promises. As things were, I was bored. Those first days, like your first days in the army, were spent in a frantic endeavor to find out what you had to do. One of my first duties was to find out what club I was in. Clubs were the units to which we were assigned for compulsory games. They belonged to the call organization, not the house organization, so I had to go to a notice board, up call, to get my facts. And first to find the place, and then to dare to squeeze oneself into the crowd of more important boys around the notice board, and then to begin reading through 500 names, but always with one eye on your watch, for of course there is something else to be done within 10 minutes. I was forced away from the board before I had found my name, and so, sweating, back to the house in a flurry of anxiety, wondering how I could find time to do the job tomorrow, and what unheard-of disaster might follow if I could not. 
Why, by the way, do some writers talk as if care and worry were the special characteristics of adult life? It appears to me that there is more atra cura in an average schoolboy's week than in a grown man's average year. When I reached the house, something gloriously unexpected happened. At the door of the pres room stood one fribble, a mere houseblood, it is true, even a minor houseblood, but to me a sufficiently exalted figure, a youth of the lean, laughing type. I could hardly believe it when he actually addressed me. Oh, I say, Lewis, he bawled, I can tell you your club. You're in the same one as me, B6. What a transition from all but despair to elation I underwent. All my anxiety was laid to rest. And then the graciousness of Fribble, the condescension. If a reigning monarch had asked me to dine, I could hardly have been more flattered. But there was better to follow. On every half-holiday I went dutifully to the B6 notice board to see whether my name was down to play that afternoon or not. And it never was. This was pure joy, for of course I hated games. My native clumsiness, combined with the lack of early training for which Belzin was responsible, had ruled out all possibility of my ever playing well enough to amuse myself, let alone to satisfy other players. I accepted games, quite a number of boys do, as one of the necessary evils of life, comparable to income tax or the dentist. And so, for a week or two, I was in clover. Then the blow fell. Fribble had lied. I was in a totally different club. My name had more than once appeared on a notice board I had never seen. I had committed the serious crime of skipping clubs. The punishment was a flogging administered by the head of the call in the presence of the assembled call prez. To the head of the call himself, a red-headed, pimply boy with a name like Borage or Porridge, I can bear no grudge. It was to him a routine matter. But I must give him a name because the real point of the story requires it. The emissary, some blood a little lower than the head himself, who summoned me to execution, attempted to reveal to me the heinousness of my crime by the words, Who are you? Nobody. Who is Porridge? The most important person there is. I thought then, and I still think, that this rather missed the point. There were two perfectly good morals he could have drawn. He might have said, we are going to teach you never to rely on second-hand information when first-hand is available. A very profitable lesson. Or he might have said, What made you think that a blood could not be a liar? But who are you? Nobody. However just, seems hardly relevant. The implication is that I have skipped club into arrogance or defiance, and I puzzle endlessly over the question whether the speaker really believed that. Did he really think it likely that an utterly helpless stranger in a new society, a society governed by an irresistible class, on whose favor all his hopes of happiness depended, had set himself in the first week to pull the nose of the most important person there is? It is a problem which has met me many times in later life. What does a certain type of examiner mean when he says, To show up work like this is an insult to the examiners. Does he really think that the plowed candidate has insulted him? Another problem is Fribble's share in my little catastrophe. Was his lie to me a hoax? A practical joke? Was he playing off some old score against my brother? Or was he, as I now think most likely, simply what our ancestors called a rattle? A man from whose mouth information, true and false, flows out all day long without consideration, almost without volition. Some might think that, whatever his motive had originally been, 
He might have come forward and confessed his part when he saw what I was in for. But that, you know, was hardly to be expected. He was a very minor blood, still climbing up the social stair. Burridge was almost as far above Fribble as Fribble was above me. By coming forward, he would have imperiled his social position, in a community where social advancement was the one thing that mattered. School is a preparation for public life. In justice to Wyvern, I must add that Fribble was not, by our standards, quite a fair representative of bluttery. He had offended against the rules of gallantry in a manner which, my brother tells me, would have been impossible in his day. I said just now that the tarts were solicited, not compelled. But Fribble did use all his prefectorial powers for a whole term to persecute a boy called, let us say, Parsley, who had refused his suit. This was quite easy for Fribble to do. The innumerable small regulations which a junior boy could break almost unawares enabled a prefect to make sure that a given boy was nearly always in trouble, while the fagging system made it easy to see that he had no leisure at all at any hour of any day. So Parsley learned what it was to refuse even a minor blood. The story would be more impressive if Parsley had been a virtuous boy and had refused on moral grounds. Unfortunately, he was as common as a barber's chair, had been a reigning toast in my brother's day, and was now almost past his bloom. He drew the line at Fribble, but Fribble's attempt at coercion was the only instance of its kind I ever knew. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.